Research has shown over and over again that no matter how frail the older adult is, it is safe for them to exercise at a higher dosage. And it's really older adults look up to us as healthcare providers to show them the ropes of what is safe and what is not safe. If we're showing them to exercise with a green TheraBand, what message are we sending to them? Exercise in the aging population is thankfully becoming more popular. So today we had Dr. Mariana Wingood on. Now she is a researcher, a clinician, a program director. She does courses in relation to geriatrics. We covered not only the minimum dosages and the guidelines for exercises in the aging adult, but we also went deeper into behavior change and how we actually get the population to make these changes sustainably and for the long term. Mariana has also just done a masterclass, which you can check out for free in the show notes. Please look there. Enjoy this episode. My name is Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explained. Welcome, Mariana, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to be on this podcast today. We're going to talk about exercise in the aging human uh, and we're going to start on agreed guidelines and, and dosages. So in your research, Mariana, have we, have we found that kind of gold standard of what we should and shouldn't be doing? And a little a word on dosages that we chatted about off air. Could you speak to that for us? Yeah, of course. I gladly speak to that. So there are a variety of recommendations in the U.S. here, the American Colleges of Sports Medicine to the... U.S. Preventative uh, Task Force to the World Health Organizations. And one thing that they all have in common is that really any movement is good. Getting people moving is great. However, it is ideal to get um, older adults to doing 150 minutes of moderate physical activity a week. And moderate intensity is really they shouldn't be able to have a full conversation as they're doing it. They should be slightly out of breath or doing 75 minutes of vigorous physical activity where they really can't say more than two words without catching their breath. So that's really for the aerobic piece. For the strengthening piece, that should also be done at least twice a week at a moderate intensity or greater which really means they should be doing about 70% of their one RM, meaning that they do no more than 15 repetitions before they hit failure. Meaning that when they do that repetition, that last one where they're hitting failure, they're no longer able to do the full range without compensating and stopping on the dime. Meaning you hit, you say stop, they should be able to stop without moving and just control that motion. So that is for strengthening. And ideally, it's great if you even incorporate power training, which is so often missed with older adults. And for power training, the intensity is a little lower, especially when they initially start with power training and the reps are higher. So usually I start with like 20 reps um, at an intensity of 20% of one RM and progress them as is appropriate. And then balance training, they should do balance training at least once a week. However, I want to point out that in order to decrease someone's fall risk, it actually takes 50 hours of balance training. 
and strengthening to really decrease someone's risk for falls. So it's really important that, you know, you start this appropriately dosed exercise in your clinic, but that they progress it to outside their clinic as well. That's some really wonderful goals that the 50 hours is interesting. And what's the reality though? What do you, what do you generally see in practice? I know, I know just listening to that, it sounded like quite a lot. What do you generally see as far as underdosage or overdosage? I could go in so many directions related to this. Um, for exercise prescription, underdosage is something that I see really commonly. You know, a lot of times when I review charts or do audits or just observe, I hear the three sets of 10, but no one has any reasoning why they're doing the three sets of 10. And I watched a patient lifting a two pound weight or using a light green TheraBand when they're walking in and out. And I'm like, if they're walking in and out, they're carrying their weight, which tells me that they should be able to do way more. And that is not moderate intensity. So that's something that I see really common. And the challenging thing outside of the clinic is really getting individuals to be active and do their exercises, which really is behavior change. And as physios, we don't often use a behavior change techniques like psychologists do. And we kind of tell people what they should do, but we don't use these techniques on a regular basis. Mm. May that be uh, graded tasks for the exercises, setting specific short-term goals for the exercises themselves. We set goals that are really based on what we want the patient to do or the patient's long-term goal of wanting to dance at their granddaughter's wedding or whatever it may be but we don't always grade that to with them. We grade it in our notes, but not with them. And, you know, monitoring them and giving them accountability. There's so many various behavior change techniques that could be incorporated in clinical practice. And they're not that easy, not not that hard to do. They're pretty easy to incorporate. There's even things to follow, like brief action planning and exercises medicine has a great way of uh, really promoting behavior change with stages of change and such. So that's something that I have noticed over the years as I practice, as well as in my research. If you could give the listeners, say, one or two things that would help with behavior change, because what we were discussing is that patients are great at doing the dosage and the course of action while they're with you. And you you were discussing that a lot of the time you would see those patients six or 12 months later and they completely regressed. And that's when you became interested in behavior change. What are one or two things that clinicians could start trying or implementing now? That's a great question. I think one thing that we often do as clinicians, and part of that I understand are other barriers and factors that come into clinical practice, but something we do is we find out that a patient did not do their home exercise program we tend to say, oh, well, you really should do your exercise program. Like it's going to help you. Your recovery kind of depends on this. And we almost throw a guilt spiel into it. And it's hard not to at times, but really the best way to go about it is to do, you know, using motivational interviewing is fascinating and great, but assess their barriers. Why didn't they perform those home exercise programs, create an action plan What are the barriers? How do we address the barriers? 
can we set a smaller goal? And sometimes that goal is something like, how about we figure out a way for you to monitor your exercises? I want you over the next few days, think of a method that would work for you to monitor that. So just setting smaller goals and just really looking at those small barriers and not going too far. Has the research shown any preference to behavior change? You mentioned motivational interviewing or action planning. Do you think that's individual or has there been any research on those methods? Oh, there's definitely been research on all of them. Yeah. And both motivational interviewing and action planning has been a huge interventions that have been researched related to behavior change strategies. And I know that not too long ago, there was a paper published on, I think it was titled something along the lines of when adults don't exercise. And it was related to behavior change strategies for sedentary, middle-aged and older adults. And one of the things they found out is that really a personalized approach that uses motivational interviewing that includes both social support, goal setting, positive effects has really been shown to make changes in the individual's exercise regimen. Mm. What are some questions you might ask if, um, if I returned and I wasn't doing my exercises, just to bring that down to a, a practical example? I ask usually, what are some things or what is one thing that really kept you from doing your exercises? Mm, yeah. And I started a conversation related to that. And number one thing is really listening. Yeah. Probably number one barrier that people say is I didn't have time, which as humans, we use that excuse all the time. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's never time. It's prioritization. We all yeah. have 24 seven you know, 24 hours, seven days a week, it's how we use that time. And also how efficient we are at Mm -hmm. things. And sometimes it's simple solutions, like how about we incorporate heel raises to brushing your teeth, or you watch your favorite television show, whatever it may be, during the commercial break, or during the advertisement, uh, stand up and march at your walker, Things like that, where it's kind of incorporated with little reminders on the remote or on the coffee table or wherever. Those are some strategies that I've used for some of these barriers that come up. I'm also going on another tangent here of the health professional. So the the health professional potentially underdosing. Is there anything in the research there or strategies you've seen? I I know you mentioned that health professionals do tend to underdose the, the green TheraBand example. Would you have any words of advice or encouragement for for the health professional with an aging human? Yeah. So one of the barriers why older adults don't usually exercise or perform physical activity is because they're afraid that it's not safe. Mm. Research has shown over and over again that no matter how frail the older adult is, it is safe for them to exercise at a higher dosage. And it's really... Older adults look up to us as healthcare providers to show them the ropes of what is safe and what is not safe. If we're showing them to exercise with a green TheraBand, what message are we sending to them? Yeah. So it's just a different way to think about that. Mm. Another thing I recommend, there's so many great resources out there about appropriate dosage nowadays, various podcasts, various reading material. I mean, I could think of 
a whole book of references I can give about dosaging. But in the end, it's really what motivates you. And we really, as physios, I think, went into the profession to make a difference in our patients and helping them. Yeah. By underdosing, we're doing the opposite of helping them. I love that. So there's, there's definitely a barrier for, for health professionals and the nocebic effects of giving very low-grade TheraBand exercises. I thought we'd finish on a bit of the research around running and NEOA in the aging population and the hurricane, which I'll let you go into. Oh, yes. Great. So the hurricane is not what you may think as in the weather disaster. The hurricane has to do with a lovely individual whose last name is Hawkins, but they call her hurricane because she just came in and swept everyone away. So the hurricane is a lovely 105-year-old individual who this year smashed the world record for the 100-meter dash and finished it in approximately one minute. And the fascinating thing is that she didn't really start running till the age of 100. So, you know, we talk about should you not run when you're older or should you not start when you're running, running when you're older? I would say that you can start at whatever point you feel ready or the patient feels ready. However, there is a progression of forces. So Hurricane Hawkins started running around the age of 100, but she was uh, cycling her entire life and mm. then decided that she was having a hard time keeping on the bike and no longer wanted to ride outside and was bored inside. So she kind of started running. I think her daughters or her kids signed her up for a race and she's like, why not? And along those lines, we can all start running at some point. We just have to be smart about it. If someone's been sedentary their entire life, running a marathon the next day is probably not a good idea. I personally am not qualified as an older adult. I don't have that privilege at this point. I have many years of life to experience and learn from prior to being as wise as my older adult patients. But I actually have pretty significant OA in my left knee and compete in more marathons than I would like to admit in Ironmans. And people always ask me how I do it when I have such severe arthritis. And part of it is also just keeping an appropriate strengthening program. Mm. And I know if I slack on my strengthening program, um, my OA flares up pretty soon after my slacking occurs. So part of it is not only progression of forces, but ensuring that they're strong enough to relieve some stress from the joint. Yeah. I love, Mariana, that you've given us the, the guidelines, the research and the dosage. But that's a really wonderful and inspirational story for health professionals and their patients. And then you, in the middle there, you kind of covered what we actually need to do, which is the behavior change to get this stuff to stick. So that's a really wonderful and well-rounded episode. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been a pleasure and so much fun.